Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. That really helps us get it in front of more people. So thank you so much to everyone that's been doing that. Our social media is Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch like our iconic niche legend dad hat. Everyone's got to get that. I feel like the summer's moving by really fast and you need something to shade your eyes from the sun. That's at poppantheonpod.com. And we, of course, have our iconic Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where we are providing at least three bonus episodes of the show per month, plus so much more. That's at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Of course, my queer pop party is having its next installment tomorrow night, July 14th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. I hope to see some of the niche legends there. Link to buy tickets to that is in the show notes of this episode. All right, this week we are talking about a pop star who came mighty fast and fell off just as fast in the late 80s and early 90s. This is Paula Abdul. Some of you actually probably might know her better from her pretty iconic run as a judge on American Idol in the 2000s, maybe in the early 2010s. I forgot exactly what years those were. But this is a story about a pop career that seemed absolutely impenetrable for a couple of years, had a string of huge hits, couple big albums, and then burned really fast and bright. So it was really fun getting to talk about this because it shows how a pop star can really speak to a specific moment, but then be unable to transcend that specific moment, despite many talents and some really good songs. So I had a really fun time getting into this episode, and I hope you enjoy it too. So here is Pop Pantheon, Paula Abbott. Abdul. Look, let's just be straight up. Sorry. Paula Abdul might not be the greatest pop star of all time. She might not even be one of the best of the 1980s, the decade she closed out with a pretty remarkable string of hits. But for a few years there, say from 1988 to 1991, Paula Abdul represented the platonic ideal of what a pop star from that exact moment could be. Tenacious, frothy, an extraordinarily hardworking showbiz savant, and perhaps most pertinently, a virtuoso dancer whose employment of choreography and the music video format usually made up for her shortcomings as a singer. The 1980s were a transformative time for pop music and stardom, more or less defining what we think of as the quote-unquote pop star today. And for a brief moment there, right at the tail end of that decade, Paula could well have been the picture next to the term in the dictionary. Paula Julie Abdul was born in the San Fernando Valley in 1962. Paula's mother was a concert pianist, and as a child, she learned ballet, jazz, and tap. In her teen years, Paula was head cheerleader at Van Nuys High School and spent her summer vacations working with a musical theater group. After graduating, she landed a coveted spot as an L.A. Laker girl, and within a year, she was choreographing routines and is credited with updating the squad's style with funky, tight moves. Paula's talent and star quality caught the attention of Jackie Jackson of the Jacksons, who recruited her to do choreography for the music video for the group's 1984 single, Torture, after seeing her perform at a game. Paula was then invited to choreograph the Jacksons' entire victory tour, which then led to a string of collaborations with Janet Jackson on her iconic videos for What Have You Done For Me Lately, Nasty, When I Think Of You, and Control. As a result of those videos, which helped make Janet a star, Paula became the music business and Hollywood's go-to choreographer, transposing her signature style, which incorporated hip-hop with more classical jazz, and created routines for musical acts like George Michael, Debbie Gibson, and Duran Duran for Oscar
Oscar ceremonies and for films like Big and Coming to America. In 1987, Paula used the money she'd earned as a choreographer to cut a demo to shop to record labels and landed a deal with Virgin, who released her debut album Forever Your Girl the next year. Despite some glossy initial singles, including Knocked Out, written and produced by a then red-hot babyface in L.A. Reid, the record initially failed to take off until radio stations unexpectedly took a liking to a song buried deep in the track listing, a scrappy industrial funk mid-tempo banger called Straight Up. Straight Up somewhat organically built its way into a number one hit in early 1989, and along with its iconic black-and-white David Fincher-directed video, aptly showcasing Paula's virtuosic steps, made her a breakout star. Straight Up and Paula herself really could only have happened like they did right at that moment. Thanks to bigger stars like Michael, Janet, and Madonna, the mid to late 1980s were a moment in pop where the video was king and choreography was as important or perhaps even more so than singing ability. Paula was not a traditionally great singer by any means, but pseudo New Jack swing slammers like Straight Up, which allowed her to glide above heavy drum programming and her ability to sell songs both visually and with her general charm, helped close the gap. Straight Up also became the first in a string of number one singles for Paula, marking one of the signature run of pop hits of the 1980s and the first time a female artist had four number one singles from a debut album. Straight Up, The Saccharine Forever Your Girl, The Icy Slammer Cold Hearted, and The Cartoon Rapping Cat Featuring Opposites Attract, each of which was accompanied by a memorable video which garnered heavy rotation on MTV and insinuated Paula as a dominant force there. These smashes propelled Forever Your Girl into a blockbuster affair. The album hit number one on the Billboard 200, was certified seven times platinum, and was the most successful album ever released by Virgin Records to that point. Still, Paula was plagued by allegations that she was a label product, often dinged for her tinny vocals, and besieged by a lawsuit by a former backup singer who claimed she'd sung lead vocals on many of Forever's signature hits. In a savvy response, Paula began the campaign for her sophomore album, 1991's Spellbound, with a sweet, lilting ballad called Rush Rush, which, like all the great Paula Abdul hits of this era, came complete with a sweeping, big-budget music video that recreated the classic film Rebel Without a Cause, with Paula in the Natalie Wood role and a then-red-hot Keanu Reeves taking on the James. Dean part. This risky move paid off with Rush Rush becoming the longest running number one hit of her career, claiming the top spot for five weeks. Spellbound itself, which admirably attempted to pivot Paula into more ballads, socially conscious lyrics, and adapt then-vanguard dance music styles, received mixed reviews from critics, but still managed to become a relative commercial success, spawning one more number one hit, The Promise of a New Day, the number six peaking Blowing Kisses in the Wind, and two more top 40 hits in Vibology and Will You Marry Me. The record moved three million copies, nothing to scoff at, but wasn't quite the ubiquitous juggernaut of Forever Your Girl. After Spellbound, Paula took a hiatus from music to deal with her personal life. She had divorced actor Emilio Estevez after just two years and sought treatment for bulimia, which she spoke about publicly. However, by the time she released her third, and it turns out, final studio album, 1995's Head Over Heels, edgier genres like grunge music and gangster rap had infiltrated the sound of mainstream pop, and the charts had turned the page on the type of featherweight late 80s confection Paula represented. Despite attempts to expand her sound into more hip-hop and R&B, and deepen her persona with more personal lyrics, 
lyrics, Head Over Heels flopped, producing just one top 40 single, the slinky My Love Is For Real. Two years later, in 1997, Paula co-wrote Spinning Around with the intent that the song would serve as a comeback, but dropped her plans and gave it to Kylie Minogue instead, who turned it into her own giant return to the charts. Paula found a new vehicle for her charm and formidable showbiz acumen in the early 2000s when she began appearing as one of the founding judges on the blockbuster reality singing competition American Idol, on which she appeared on more than 300 episodes and won over a whole new generation of fans, becoming a reality TV staple for the next couple of decades. Paula Abdul has had two multi-platinum number one albums on the Billboard 200 and six number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100. She received one Grammy Award, five VMA Awards, three American Music Awards, a Soul Train Award, a World Choreography Award, a GLAAD Award, two Emmy Awards, two People's Choice Awards, one Teen Choice Award, and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Here with me to discuss the brief rise and fall of Paula Abdul is host of the podcast hit parade, Chris Malamphy. All right, I'm here once again with chart analyst, pop critic, host of the iconic Hit Parade podcast, writer of Slate's Wise, the song number one, and author of the forthcoming book, Old Town Road. It's Chris Malamphy. Chris, welcome back to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much, Louie. It's always a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to have you. I want to give you a quick second up top here, maybe to talk a little bit about your book. I just am so excited to read it. We were just off micing a little bit about it. Do you want to just quickly tell everybody what your book is about and why everybody who's listening to the show should absolutely go out and buy it? Because I'm sure that they should. And they should. The book is called Old Town Road. And if that sounds like the name of a song by Lil Nas X, that is because it is about the song by Lil Nas X. It's part of a new-ish series from Duke University Press called Singles. If you've ever heard of the book series 33 and a Third, where each book is about a single album, This is the same idea. Duke is doing kind of a successor series where each book is about a single song. And they've done books about Roadrunner, the proto-punk song by the Modern Lovers from the 70s. They have one coming out this year about Hound Dog, the song made famous by both Big Mama Thornton and Elvis Presley. And my book is about Old Town Row by Lil Nas X featuring Billy Ray Cyrus. And the reason I think your audience would care about this book is because, obviously, I talk about Lil Nas X's history and how he came to write the song, but it's not just that. It's also about the history of the charts. It's about history of race on the charts, genre, how hits got bigger as the charts evolved, all the stuff you and I were talking about on your show just last summer. Mm -hmm. So if you're at all interested in the mechanics of the charts and why things are tagged genre the way they are or how race functions on the charts. Of course, everybody remembers when this song, Old Town Road, got pulled from the country chart in 2019, infamously. If you're interested in any of that, this is the book for you. I can't wait to read it. And if there's anybody to write a definitive history on the longest running Hot 100 number one of all time, that would be you. So I can't wait to read the book. And as of this recording, it is still that. Yes. Somebody's got to stop Morgan (laughs) Wallen. He's at 11 weeks right now. And as of this episode dropping, it will still be that no matter what happens with Morgan Wallen. So at least for the purposes of this podcast, still the longest running number one single of all time. Yes, indeed. And man, listen, everybody, anything you could do to help stop Morgan Wallen from taking that away from our queer black king, Little Nas X. I think we all should band together in solidarity, especially as Pride Month winds down to try to stop that from happening. So Chris, we're with you. All of the Pop Pantheon listeners are team Chris and the Old Town Road Morgan Wallen battle here. Thank you, sir. You're so welcome. All right. So we're here to talk about someone else that actually is defined by a very brief but mighty chart run. Someone that I think is sort of a footnote now maybe to some of the bigger acts from the late 80s that we talk about as the canonical pop stars of that period, Michael, Madonna, Prince, George, Michael, etc. But for a brief moment there, seemed like a pretty huge 
Pop Force, who had one of those iconic records that seemed to only happen in the 80s, where almost every single song on it was a hit, proceeded to have a pretty successful follow-up album, and then pretty much disappeared from the zeitgeist. So a really interesting story, especially when thinking about the way the pop pantheon works. One thing that I was thinking about, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this as we get into the conversation, is... The late 80s, or maybe the 80s as a decade in total, seemed to be a period of pop stardom where dancing was as important as singing or writing songs in a way that it really doesn't feel like that's the state of pop stardom now when we think about Taylor Swift and Olivia Rodrigo and Billie Eilish and SZA and all these artists that are not really defined by choreography and this Jacksonian presentation of choreography. I feel like Paula Abdul's success and part of the reason that she was sort of in the right place at the right time, because she's not a particularly virtuosic anything else besides dancer, has to do with this unique coming together of choreography and the other elements of pop stardom that we think of. Is that something that rings true to you about the recipe for her success, even in this fleeting moment here? That absolutely jibes with my perspective on the phenomenon that is Paula Abdul. She was a choreographer first, a singer second. I don't think I'm even insulting her when I say that. And it's interesting. One article that I went back to as I was refamiliarizing myself with the career of Paula Abdul was this profile of her that ran in the Washington Post at the very tippy top of her fame in early 1990. There's a wonderful quote in here. Whether she sings well is a matter of individual taste and questionable importance. But since Michael Jackson changed the profile of pop singers with his Thriller album and with the entrenched influence of music videos, pop singers must be show people too. Quote, used to be you just needed to sing and girls around you could dance, says one record company executive about Michael Jackson. Now he was the guy singing and dancing, unquote. Mm. So the point being that you really can kind of divide pop history into pre-Michael and post-Michael. Michael is the dividing line where the dancing is as important as the singing. Not only did Michael Jackson have a supple singing voice, but he was an incredible dancer. He was a generational talent as a dancer, right? right? And so now it's important that you can do both. The other interesting thing I was reading, and I'm going to give credit to my friend and colleague, Stephen Thomas Erlewine, who writes for All Music. And he wrote the biography of Paul Abdul for All Music. And he makes an interesting point. He says, in the wake of Madonna's success, many dance pop DJs has filled the charts, but out of them all, Paul Abdul was the only one who sustained a career. Mm. I think that's an interesting point. I had to think about that when he said it. I'm like, is that fair? Okay, if you don't consider Janet Jackson to be following in the wake of Madonna, and I think they're contemporaries, but I think what Janet is doing is quite different from Madonna, right? Agree. I think Tom's point is that Paul Abdul's career definitely exists in a world Madonna helped create. And unlike, say, I'll pick somebody else from the 80s, Stacey Q, right. who scores a couple of dance pop hits but then kind of disappears. Right. Paul Abdul exists in the world Madonna created, but then actually came up with a full-blown career out of it. Mm. And to go back to a point you were making at the top, we look at her as a bit of a footnote now, but yeah, for about a three-year period, Paul Abdul had a capital I imperial career where... Virtually everything she did topped the charts or came real close. And it's remarkable to consider. It was kind of a brief squall that lasted about three or four years, but it was impressive while it lasted. I'm interested in your thinking of her as a descendant of Madonna because I was so focused on her as a descendant of Janet as I was listening through the music because I think obviously Janet played an incredibly important role in her career in terms of 
choosing her to choreograph the incredibly iconic music videos for What Have You Done For Me Lately, Control, Nasty, When I Think Of You, etc. And so when you look at those videos now and you're thinking about them through the lens of Paula, you see Paula so heavily in those choreography sequences. It's really interesting. Clearly, she played such an integral role. I mean, Janet is remembered so much for her choreography, but so much of that original version of that for Janet was Paula's doing, and you can really see that in those videos. But I also think Janet, in terms of the way that she approached her music, in the way that the industrial Minneapolis-style funk that she created with Jimmy and Terry allowed a certain venue for her incredibly thin voice to function well in the face of these spare percussive elements. Mm -hmm. I think that Paula's entire career, and especially that first record, that incredible Forever Your Girl album, feels like it can't exist in a world without control coming first. That was sort of the thing that I kept thinking about. So I definitely hear Madonna in many things that Paula did as well. But I think what we're circling around by talking about both of these things is that Paula Abdul, even in her success, also kind of represented somebody that didn't quite have the singular artistic force POV that these A-tier pop stars have, where they have these sweeping visionary ideas of what their career should be and how to evolve at a pace that makes sense to their audience and also how to access layers of depth to themselves that doesn't alienate that audience and continues to make them interesting over and over and over again. Paula didn't quite ever unlock that. She's a really charming on-record presence. And the other thing that I kept thinking about a lot is just fucking beast hard worker. Yes. She just strikes me as somebody that just knew how to work her ass off, never gave up, and was just a workhorse. And I think that seems like a really important element. But in thinking about this music and in looking back at it, and so much of it is so great, and we're going to talk about it all and all the great singles, and there's a lot of great videos and so much great choreography, obviously. I never get a sense from her of an artist that has that all-encompassing singular POV that it takes to really have a career like a Jackson or a Madonna or a Beyonce or whomever. Even at the peak of her success, you don't really get that same force of vision that I feel like defines some of those other artists. Well, let me put it in these terms, which I think will make sense to the audience for Pop Pantheon in particular. The first time I came on here with you, we talked about Diana Ross. Right. If I remember correctly, one of the points we made was Diana Ross was going to be a star someday in some fashion. Yes. She just had the it you're talking about, right? Exactly. That's why she's tier one. Spoiler alert, if you haven't listened to the Diana Ross episode, we put her in tier one, right? Also, what are you doing if you haven't listened to that episode? <laughs> Crazy, sad for you. And spoiler alert too, in this episode, I don't think either one of us is going to advocate for Paula Abdul to be in tier one. <laughs> I don't think I'm saying anything controversial right now, right? There's nothing inherent in Paula Abdul that makes her necessarily a singing sensation. Yes. If I can flash ahead, a person you could compare her to, but I think she might even be in a higher tier than Paula, is Jennifer Lopez, who, as I've often said, is somebody who started as a dancer and started as kind of a multi-hyphenate, an actress, a little bit of everything. Paula's not an actress. I think Jennifer is ultimately more talented given the breadth of her talents, but Paul is more of a specialist because she's a killer choreographer, probably a better choreographer than J-Lo was. Yes. I think that's inarguable. Yes. But J-Lo came at her singing fame late in her career, relatively speaking. Right. And now Singer is the first thing you see when you look up Jennifer Lopez's profile on Wikipedia. Right. Singer is also the first thing you see when you look up 
Paul Abdul's profile on Wikipedia, which to some might be a laugh because Paul Abdul has never had the strongest voice, but her records as a pop star are considerable. They are really quite serious, as we're about to discuss. Mm -hmm. So even if she doesn't possess that sort of itness that a Beyonce does or a Diana Ross does or a Madonna does, that come hell or high water, what burns in me is a fire that's going to make me a megastar someday— she still possesses a try-hard, work-hard ethic that makes it possible for her to be a star. And the only other thing I'll say in this question of, in what slipstream does she exist? Is she a Janet or is she a Madonna? Is she a Michael? She's a little bit of all of them. I don't think her singing career that breaks in 88, 89 really exists unless Madonna and Janet come first. Exactly. They tilled the soil upon which Paul Abdul's stardom grew. Yes, I think that's completely accurate. And the other thing about her that I'll say just before we get into the details of it is she is very charming and she does possess a certain appeal about her. There's a sweetness. I think her persona was really defined by almost a puppy love vibe. Like when you listen to a lot of these songs, they sort of revolve, unlike Madonna and Janet's music, which I think from the get when they both became famous, deals in a lot of complexities. I mean, I thought about the way that Janet's breakthrough album Control is a really interesting angle for a teen pop star to take, which is not about puppy love. It's not about blah, blah, blah. It's about taking control of your life, finding your identity. Obviously, that's a really influential album and a lot of people have followed in her wake. But at the time, I think that was a pretty unique POV for someone to be taking in a mainstream pop sense. Her ace card was this kind of sweetness and simplicity. Yes. Whereas the others traded in complexities. They made pop and dance pop more complex than it had ever been before Mm -hmm. with their big ideas and the nature of these complex records that they were putting out. And so Paula's ace card, as I was perceiving it through this listen-through, is really just her kind of simplicity, her sweetness, dealing with very elemental ideas about puppy love and whatever. And that was both incredibly charming when it worked, but didn't really allow for a longer career. It just felt like once she tried to bust out of that a little bit, it just didn't work anymore. So it's an interesting thing of just right time, right place. There's all of these elements that feel like they're coming together to allow this to happen. And I think your point is well taken that Diane Anna Ross, these people would have been stars in whatever era and they would have molded themselves to fit what was going to happen. And I feel like Paula Abdul only could have happened exactly in the moment that she did. There was just something about her unique talents and what was required of pop stars at that exact moment in the late 80s that just gelled. And of course, her work ethic and not to take anything away from her, but there's something very singular to the moment about Paula Abdul that I think will be a fun venue for us to talk about what that moment was about and why that all kind of came together in the way that it did. So my first question for you is just some light background just to set us up here. Who is Paula Abdul? Are there elements to her upbringing, background, etc. that feel instructive to the type of pop star and choreographer, I guess, that she's going to become? Yeah. One of the things I want to point out right off the top is literally her background ethnically, because I think it matters. She's a little bit like a Bruno Mars figure in that Bruno Mars often traffics in what's considered R&B despite not being Black himself. And there's been some debate on Black Twitter over this. Mm. If Black Twitter had existed at the turn of the 80s into the 90s, they would have had a field day with Paula Abdul. Paula Abdul was born in San Fernando, California. She is Jewish on both sides. I had to confirm this. Truly the most shocking fact of this entire deep dive for me. A member of the tribe. Yes, particularly given the last name Abdul, but her father's of Syrian Jewish heritage Mm. and was born in Syria and raised in Brazil. So she's got this strange mix of 
quasi-Latin, definitely Middle Eastern, and then her mother is just a white Jew named Lorraine. <laughs> She's also, if I can compare to one more person, you know how they cast Vin Diesel and things and they say that Vin Diesel is ethnic, but nobody can quite pin down what Vin Diesel yeah, is? Yeah. Similarly, at the time, Paula Abdul was slippery in terms of her ethnicity, and this matters when she becomes a star because they're able to break her at R&B before they break her at pop radio. And one of the points you keep making, which you're right about, is that she kind of had that go-getter energy from an early age. She was taking dance lessons from a very young age, from ballet to tap to jazz. She attended Van Nuys High School in San Fernando Valley, which has made numerous other stars. She was a cheerleader. She was cheer captain. If you know anything about Paul Abdul, the fact that she was cheer captain is not surprising. Mm -hmm. She got a scholarship to a dance camp when she was only 15. She appeared in a low-budget independent musical called Junior High School when she was still in high school. So if she was destined to do anything, she was destined to be a choreographer. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon after that, she tries out for the cheerleading squad of the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team and became a Laker girl. And within a year, she became head choreographer of the Lakers. Such was her talent. So let's give Paula her props. It wasn't just force of will or try hard. It's that she had the skill. And as we talk about some of her achievements in dance, there's one thing you can never take away from Paula Abdul. It's that in her heyday, she was a hell of a choreographer. You know what's so interesting that was an element of the biography that really jumped out at me is, as we mentioned, she grew up in the San Fernando Valley. She's kind of a showbiz kid. Yeah. Her mom was Billy Wilder's assistant for a period of time, the iconic film director. I found that interesting because I feel like a weirdly singular or important element to Paula's pop stardom and her choreography approach is her love of classic Hollywood. Her idol was Gene Kelly. She was obsessed with MGM musicals. I thought that was an interesting thing that clearly was seated in her from a young age growing up in this area and growing up with a family that was engaged in show business because she has a real sense and working knowledge. You can see it in the choreo. You can see it in MC Scat Cat, who we'll talk about a little bit later. I mean, there's elements of her artistry that are fusing the worlds of dance pop, maybe even some elements of hip hop and R&B, and then classic Hollywood homages. Yes. There's a lot of Gene Kelly. There's a lot of that golden era Hollywood musical vibe to how she approaches her choreography. And I think she even talks about it herself when she's talking about what her inspirations are. But I didn't realize that she really kind of grew up in a showbiz fam that was connected to Hollywood. Yeah. And I agree with you that being surrounded by that milieu it seeped into her pores at a very young age. She often says, and maybe this is apocryphal, but it's been repeated so many times, I think it's even in the Rolling Stone bio of her, that her origin story with wanting to be a choreographer was the Gene Kelly movie, Singing in the Rain. Yeah. She took one look at Singing in the Rain and said, I want to do that. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain, what a glorious feeling. 
feel and I'm happy again. And I buy that. Me too. You can see it in the choreography that she later does. Yes, some of it is hip-hop derived given when she comes up. She was born in 1962. So to do the math, she's in her 20s in the 1980s as Michael Jackson's thriller is happening, as Madonna's coming up. So she's absorbing that kind of choreography as breakdancing takes over hip-hop choreography. She's absorbing that, but she's blending it with that classic Hollywood stuff. She kind of wants to have it all fit together, have all the pieces fit together. And I think cheerleading is also an important component of it. The fact that cheerleading is how she breaks out. She brought a certain bodily energy to her choreography. It was jazz hands, if you know what I mean. It was showy in a very eager-to-please kind of way, and I don't mean that in a shady way. It was anything for the audience. It was not withholding in any way. So in thinking about her stint as a Lakers girl, can you maybe just lay out what that is or meant? Did that make her even locally recognizable? Was it a big deal to be a Lakers girl? What were they doing? And did she have an impact through her stint as the choreographer for the Lakers? Did she change what it meant to be a Lakers girl? Can you just help people understand what that means exactly? Well, with the caveat that I am not sporty at all. (laughs) You and me both, sister. Yeah, right. So my impression of the Laker girls is that after the 70s, when the whole concept of the Laker girls is codified by the owner of the Lakers. I believe his name was Jerry Buss. The Laker girls were kind of the rockets of cheerleaders to some extent. They had annual tryouts. You had to be able to achieve certain feats. What the Dallas Cowboys were to football cheerleading squads, the Laker girls were to basketball cheerleading squads. You ever get a chance to come out here and see a ball game here, you got to do it. I mean, they do it all here. They put on quite a show. It's an entertainment spectacular. And these are the Laker girls. Let's watch and listen. And I think the mere fact that Paula comes into the Laker girls in the early 80s and is made the head choreographer within a year tells you the level she was at in terms of the quality of her choreography. I wouldn't know whether they mark history in Laker girl land as before Paula, after Paula. But I do think, this much I picked up in my research, that the fact that Paula got her start as a Laker girl was discovered by the Jacksons, we'll get to that in a minute, Mm -hmm. while being a Laker girl, and then became the uber choreographer of music video of the late 80s. I do think that that mutually improved both the stardom of Paula Abdul and the reputation of the Laker girls themselves. It only made them more iconic. I mean, it's obviously clear to some degree that what she was doing was recognizable enough as her own style that the Jacksons became interested in what was happening there, as opposed to just your run-of-the-mill cheerleader choreo. I mean, there was clearly something happening there that allowed her to be recognized by someone in that echelon and be like, hey, we want something like what you've got going on. The style must have been recognizable or she must have had some sort of star quality that made her recognizable in that moment. So how does she end up getting discovered by the Jacksons? And can we talk a little bit about the music video Torture, which is her first choreography gig in this capacity? Can you just tell us a little bit about that story? And then let's talk about this pretty wild, weird music video that she ends up doing the choreography for. (laughs) The aptly named Torture. Torture, literally. It's kind of torturous to watch. Which, by the way, does not feature Michael at all, who apparently was too busy to show up for this particular music video. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Michael got the hell away from it, and you can't say you blame him. <laughs> so the story goes that at a Laker game that either was attended by just Jackie Jackson or several Jacksons. I've read different accounts that suggest that Jermaine might have been there, Tito might have been there. Anyway, Jackie, at the very least, was definitely there. He sees Paul Abdul. He talks to her. He's impressed by her choreography. And he's the writer of Torture. Mm -hmm. Let me give a little background where the Jacksons are at in 1984. Please do. So, okay, this is important. Thriller by Michael Jackson comes out in the very last month of 1982. Comes out in like late November 1982. It dominates the charts in all of 1983 and half of 1984. Michael Jackson is not just the biggest pop star on the planet. He's the biggest everything on the planet. And it's at this moment that the iron grip of the family and Joe Jackson, the patriarch, come in and say, okay, now you need to do another album with your brothers. Mm. And somewhat begrudgingly, in the summer of 1984, Michael and the rest of the Jacksons release an album called Victory Mm -hmm. that is not terribly well-received. It is not at all the best Jacksons album. That is for damn sure. It's led off by a now somewhat embarrassing single with Mick Jagger called State of Shock. Because I am nostalgic in a certain way, I kind of love State of Shock, even though it is objectively terrible. And Torture is the second single from the Jacksons Project. There was no video for State of Shock. There was going to be a video for Torture. Torture was written by Jackie Jackson. Let me give it its props. It's a pretty catchy record. It's not a great Jackson's record, but it's catchy enough. It's like a hard rock homage, as hard rock as a Jackson song could possibly get. Big guitars, it's got a little bit of metal flair. It's very 1984 in that a lot of R&B was fronting like rock in 1984. This is one of the things I love about 1984, actually, is that you listen to a song like Misled by Cool and the Gang or Torture by the Jacksons, and you're like, damn, there's some pretty legit guitars on this record, and this is nominally an R&B song. Jackie hires Paul Abdul, and actually I read a deep account that at first she was hired just as a dancer on this video, and that the original choreographer was, I bet you all didn't think I was going to mention the name Billy Idol in this (laughs) chat, but the person they hired to choreograph the video was Perry Lister, who was kind of riding high in 1984, not only as a choreographer in her own right, but as Billy Idol's girlfriend. She was in the tabloid media for being Billy Idol's slightly outrageous girlfriend. Perry Lister was the choreographer of record on Torture at first, but then Jackie brings in Paula. By the way, there were rumors since semi-confirmed that Jackie and Paula were also romantically involved. Yes, right. That Paula was a dancer in the troupe, but then Jackie tells Perry he doesn't think her choreography is working out. They offer to pay her off. She happily takes the check and walks away. And Paula Abdul, not unlike what happens with Paula and the Laker girls, Paula Abdul is stepped up to become the chief choreographer on Torture. And the reason, by the way, why this happens is because Torture is reportedly one of the most torturous music video shoots of all time. Like, it went way over budget. Again, they can't get Michael and Jermaine to show up. It's got this incomprehensible plot. It's got people in spider costumes, dancing skeletons. It's insane. Jackie reaching into an eyeball and pulling goo out. It's a weird, weird music video that looks expensive and yet cheap at the same time. 
It is not a good music video, but it is worth watching. And the choreography is not exactly front and center in it either, really. It is not. However, let me say this. Having rewatched Torture for the first time in several years for this conversation, yeah. yes, these are the things I do for you, Louis. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for putting yourself through that. I'm going to pay Paul Abdul a compliment. The choreography, as screwed up as this video is, the choreography, when it appears, is quite good. Yeah. The movements that these dancers are making in their ridiculous costumes are very body conscious. Mm -hmm. The whole body is moving and involved, and it's actually... When you can see dance in this Fakakta video, yeah. the dance is really quite good. Really detail-oriented, I would say, also. Yes. As you were mentioning, body conscious, every part of the body feels engaged and really thought out. And I think that that defines a lot of Paula's choreography. There's just so much going on throughout the whole body. And I agree, you can see that, although not like a choreo-forward video. It's really something you have to remember is happening, but really you're just distracted by all of the ridiculous shit that's happening around the choreography as you were mentioning. So more importantly than I think torture itself, this obviously provides the forum into which Janet and Paula connect. I mean, is there a connection between what happens on the tortures video and Paula's connection to the Jacksons and how does she end up in relationship with Janet Jackson, which will obviously be the moment where she rockets to the top of the choreography game for these music videos. I don't know if you caught any details about this anywhere. I didn't see whether Janet and Paula actually met on the set of Torture or whether they met later, but there's no question that being in the Jackson's orbit definitely got Paula in front of Janet Jackson. Now, Janet, in 1984, and that detail is important, is not Janet Jackson, capital J, capital J. She's just put out Dream Street, yes. which was her second album, her second sort of semi-flop album that produces some very middling R&B hits right. that are very much under the auspices of Joe Jackson's You Are an Extension of the Jackson Family brand product. Right. And it's at this moment that Janet is preparing to break away from her original contract, sign with A&M, and begin work with Jimmy and Terry. Yeah. And I think Janet recognizes in Paula the same thing to his credit, Jackie Jackson recognized in Paula this raw talent, this ability to bring out the best in people to flash ahead. One thing that's interesting about Paula is that as she starts working on more music videos, she often takes jobs where the people she's getting to dance are not natural dancers. Mm. For example, in 1986, I think it is, she choreographs the video Velcro Fly for ZZ Top. Yeah. picture the big guys in beards and she actually gives them dance moves it's a stupid video but they actually credibly pull off little dance moves that paula abdul has taught them to do right i have to imagine that a big reason why you hire paula abdul is not just that she's a talented choreographer it's that she's friendly approachable mm. has good so to speak bedside manner so it's impressive on torture what she got out of those people on a chaotic set where everybody knew they were making a big stink bomb and she managed to get pretty good choreography out of people on that set. And where she had no experience and was working with some of the biggest stars in the music business and just stepped yes. up and freaking did it. I mean, a lot of this, I think, speaks to what we were talking about earlier, which is Paula's ace card seems to be her tenacity in so many ways, more so than any of the rest of it. Yes, she has amazing talent as a choreographer and dancer, and the rest of what is required of a pop star, she has very middling talent as, but there's something about her sheer ambition and tenacity and desire to work harder than everybody else that feels integral to this story in numerous 
junctures here. There's a quote that's been repeated in several bios of Paula Abdul, but reportedly she was quaking on the inside when working on torture because she says something like, quote, it hadn't occurred to me that I was going to be asked to teach the Jacksons how to dance. I mean, come on. So I think it's important also, obviously, as Chris was beginning to lay out, that Janet at this moment is also in this really pivotal moment in her career where she's about to completely reinvent herself. She's going to become the Janet that we know and think of today through this record control in 1986. And a huge part of that, I think, is reintroducing this independent persona and this really clear point of view as a pop star that makes her not kind of a run-of-the-mill, middling R&B chart hit maker, as you were sort of saying before, but gives her this incredibly embodied, singular role to play in the pop firmament as this young Black woman who is taking control of her career, who's presenting in this really interesting way where she's, unlike how she will be starting in the 90s, is not particularly sex forward in the way that maybe a Madonna is in some ways at this time, but is kind of a tomboy. She has a really unique visual element going on to her. She wears these big shoulder pads. She's kind of covered up. Her whole vibe is like, I'm a young woman who's not going to let anybody take advantage of me and I'm in control. And her music is really interestingly not in the mold of the puppy love or this sort of oversexed vibe that some other pop stars are operating in. So in a sense, you can see why she needs really unique choreography to suit that in a way. I wonder if in thinking about the choreography that Paula provides in the music videos for a lot of the hits from Control, as I mentioned, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Control, Nasty. When I think of you, these are all seminal Janet hits and seminal hits of the period and seminal music videos of the period. What is Paula's choreography for Janet like? What does it look like to see Janet dancing Paula's choreo here? Like, what does she do for Janet? You know how I think of Paula's choreography when I'm watching either the moves in Torture or the moves in, say, Nasty or What Have You Done For Me Lately? Paula knows what to do with the middle of people's bodies, with people's torsos. People often think that choreography is about your feet primarily and maybe your hands secondarily. Yeah. And all of that's important. But one of the things I like about Paula Abdul's choreography, it's that she gets the whole body moving and she knows how to make things sensual, not necessarily dirty. Right. She has a sense of the full body and how the full body should move. So when you're watching Janet say in Nasty, picture Janet raising one arm skyward. It isn't just that Janet's pointing and asserting herself. It's that she's kind of moving in this sinuous way below that pointed finger. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yes. I have to imagine that working with Paula Abdul, what must be rewarding about it is that she isn't just teaching you steps per se, or when to point, or when to wave your arm this way. She's also teaching you, you need to feel it in this way, in your midsection. You need to feel it everywhere. And her choreography exudes an approachable sexuality. Mm -hmm. Let's call it a PG-rated sexuality that is very alluring when it's done by somebody like Janet Jackson, it's iconic. You want to imitate the moves you see in What Have You Done For Me Lately or Nasty. And it's got classic bones, right. but with a post-hip-hop sensibility. Yes, right. At a moment when New Jack Swing is being invented and this fusing of pop, R&B, and hip-hop is all happening in the music, it's also kind of happening in Paula Abdul's choreography. Right. I can see the Gene Kelly and I can see the hip-hop influence on this at the same time, which is interesting to watch. And also, 
you're dealing again, as I was mentioning, with these really percussive funk beats, these industrial funk beats. And I think the choreography does a really nice job of accenting and complementing that rhythmic feel of the songs. They have this really singular way that those Jimmy and Terry Janet records sound. And this choreo almost feels synonymous with that sound. There's something about it. It's almost like you want to throw Paula in the mix with Jimmy and Terry and Janet herself, I guess the team of four that are really inventing this whole pop megastar sensation through Janet. She's almost as important to creating that whole zhush as Jimmy and Terry are and as Janet herself is in a way. That choreography is so iconic and so complimentary to what the three of them were doing. So, okay, control is massive. These videos are huge. Paula becomes a real superstar go-to choreographer during this time period. She choreographs, as you said, for ZZ Top, for George Michael, for Duran Duran, and then I think famously, as many people will recognize, she choreographs the famous Tom Hanks dancing on the piano sequence in Big, which is obviously one of the most iconic moments in 80s movie history. Seriously. She's almost developing a signature by the mid to late 80s, which is impressive. Even if you, the lay fan, again, as a teenager, I wouldn't have told you who Paula Abdul was in, say, 1987. Right. But within the industry, there's a style of Paula Abdul choreography that's developing at this time. It's interesting, too, though, at the same time, at every turn in her career, it feels like you can't talk about her unless you're also talking about, in some ways, the other bigger stars that are either influencing her or allowing for her career to happen or who she's choreographing for. There's this feeling as we tell this story that you have to tell it through other pop stars in some ways. And I think that that's an interesting thing about her and why maybe it was a short-lived phenomenon that she actually had her own pop success because there is this feeling of she's not quite that force of nature in the same way that some of these other people are. And in some ways she kind of needs to exist in the orbit of other things in order to exist. And I think that seems to run through a lot of this. I mean, yeah, you can look at the glasses half empty or half full there. In a way, it's impressive that she uses other people as her instruments, so to speak, right. and then manages through her own achievements and force of will to become a star herself. All right, so how does Paula in the mid to late 80s begin to think, hey, I should be pursuing a career as a pop star? And how does she end up scoring her deal at Virgin leading into making her debut album, 1988's Forever Your Girl? Well, some of the choreography work she had done was affiliated with the label Virgin America. Virgin Records is an interesting label because it's famously founded in, I believe, the 70s by Richard Branson, the billionaire Brit. And many of the pop stars that you know from the 70s and 80s were actually signed to Virgin in the UK. But in the late 80s, Virgin is trying to transition into becoming a major player in the American market. So they launch a spin-off label called Virgin America. They start poaching other stars, like famously they poached Steve Winwood, of all people, when he was at the height of his fame. They got him away from Warner Brothers and signed him for the Roll With It album on Virgin America. The band Cutting Crew, which had a number one hit in 1987 with I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight was on Virgin America. In a way, this label that's a little hungry because it's trying to make a name for itself in America, and this artist who is herself rather hungry because she's starting to think about, I could do this, they both kind of find each other. Mm, interesting. And Virgin America, run by a guy named Jeff Ayeroff, they approach Paula 
and say, would you think about being a pop star? Now, again, it's a bit of chicken and egg here, whether it was Paula who pushed them or they pushed her. But I think it was a mutually beneficial relationship where it's now 1987-88. We've now existed in a world of Madonna and Janet Jackson for several years where, again, you have to be both an A-list singer and an A-list dancer to make it in this business. So if you can find somebody who knows how to dance, you're already ahead of the game. Right. There's some of that. And there's also Paula, to repeat a point you just made a second ago, Paula is often in the shadow of the people she's choreographing. But when she was a Laker girl, she was also a star. She was the star Laker girl. Right. So she kind of wants the spotlight for herself, but is content to support others at the same time. So when she and Virgin America find each other, it's kind of a, you got my chocolate and your peanut butter, you got my peanut butter and your chocolate. It's kind of like they need each other and they record Forever Your Girl, which I don't think anybody had expectations to be the mega blockbuster it turned out to be. Do you think also the existence sense of Madonna and Janet, and also maybe the way that music was being made with the advent of more machines and abilities to sort of work around people who couldn't sing particularly well. I mean, Janet is a good singer, but a very thin voice. Madonna is classically, especially in the 80s, not exactly a virtuoso singing talent. I mean, here you have two of the biggest female singers on earth who are not really the greatest singers or the most powerful singers. Is that like a unique thing to this time period to be like, because we have music videos, because we have all of this technology to make music in a new way and to manipulate everything and use computers and or whatever you want to call them in 1980. I don't know if the computers live in the right word, but machines to sort of make these records and make this sort of 360 degree version of pop stardom happen. Do you think that that's unique to this moment or peaking in this late 80s moment or having one of its peaks in this late 80s moment that sort of allows for an artist like Paula Abdul, who's really not a singer, to dream of or for people to conceive of her having this kind of singing career? I wouldn't call it necessarily the peak. I would call it the breakthrough. The breakthrough. And I would say that, yes, you now are at a moment where technology is such synthesized dance music, electronic dance music, which we weren't calling EDM back then, makes it possible to produce a record that distracts from the fact that maybe the person has a thin voice. It wasn't as if there weren't thin voice pop singers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They all existed. But yes, now the technology exists. As for the music video, I wouldn't call that a technology so much as a demand. It was a need that you had to fill that MTV space. Woe betide you if you were going to try to promote a song in the 1980s without a music video. Right. I started reading Billboard magazine and the Hot 100 in the mid-80s, and Billboard used to publish a little symbol on the charts if a music video was available for the songs on the charts. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you scanned a weekly chart, there were maybe 10 records out of 100 that didn't have a music video. It was kind of folly to produce a hit in the 80s without a music video. Right. So, to get back to Paula Abdul, if you've got somebody who can choreograph, who can dance, who looks great on camera, you're already part of the way there to pop stardom before you've even sung a note. Yeah. And then, when you get to singing a note, yeah, you've now got the technology to, we don't have auto-tune yet, that doesn't show up until the 90s, but you've got pitch correction, you've got synthesizers, you've got tools to make it possible for a Paul Abdul to be a singing sensation. Right, and you don't need to rely as heavily on the voice because you can rely on the visual element of it. I mean, I think that's just such an interesting advent of the 80s. It's when you're watching the Paula Abdul music videos, these canonical, incredible music videos, you're not sitting there thinking about Paula Abdul's singing talent, you're 
watching her do all of this stuff and you're like, fuck, she's amazing in a way that to speak about our previous conversation that for most of Diana Ross's career, you were just listening to her singing. Or if you're thinking about any of those pre-video age artists, you had to rely more on the voice because it was completely an auditory medium for most people. You could go through your whole fandom for an artist and maybe never see them or see them perform once in a while on TV or something like that. But in reality, the main way you're interfacing with these songs is by hearing them. And all of a sudden, here we are in an era where the main way you're interfacing with these songs, especially if you're a younger person, is by watching them. Exactly. So I want to talk just quickly before we talk in sort of the weird commercial trajectory of Forever Your Girl. What do you know about how this record comes together? She works with a lot of different people, Elliot Wolf, Oliver Lieber, Babyface and crew. How does this album come together? And what do you think they're sort of basing the idea for this music off of? Who are they looking at? I'm sure we're going to talk about Janet again here in Madonna. But what is the idea for this record? And who are these collaborators? And what are they helping realize for Paula in this moment? I think it's a cobbled together record, which doesn't necessarily have a single producer vision. Here's the major difference difference between Janet Jackson and Paul Abdul. Control is the vision of Janet with Jimmy and Terry. Yes. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Janet Jackson forged the sound of that singular, sonically consistent album. Yeah. Forever Your Girl, it all works together. It's a 40-minute album, but practically every song is either written or produced by somebody different. It's kind of an amalgamation of talents. Mm. And at that time, L.A. Reid and Babyface were just coming up with the deal and just starting to emerge as creators of hits for others. Yeah. Oliver Lieber was somebody who'd recorded hits before. So it's kind of a paint-by-numbers approach to album creation. Because again, we're talking about somebody who doesn't come in with her own set of people. It's not like she brought an army of, oh, I got to work with these producers. Yeah, right. Nor were people probably knocking down the door to do that with her necessarily at this moment in her career. Right. Paula had engendered goodwill in this company town by being such a friendly presence, such a capable choreographer, so can do and try hard. Yeah. But yeah, she's not going to be attracting the likes of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis at this time. Right. She does attract... Ellie Reed and Babyface, who interestingly write and produce Knocked Out, which winds up being the first single. Knocked Out is not a big pop hit. L.A. and Babyface in 1988 are who you turn to if you want an R&B hit. They're not necessarily yet who you turn to for a big pop hit. That's going to come for them in the next couple of years. They kick off the campaign with this song that is catchy enough, but was not a big pop hit. It peaked at number 41 on the Hot 100, so missing the pop top 40. It did make it to number eight on the R&B side. So for a minute there, Paul Abdul is a rising R&B star, but not at all a pop star. All right, so how do we end up with the unlikely choice of the third single straight up becoming the breakthrough moment? I know that that's a bit of a winding and unexpected road that we end up with this breakthrough hit. Well, and on that road, let's mention that a song that will later become a big hit called It's Just the Way That you love me yeah. is chosen as the second single and it also kind of flops this was an oliver lieber record he writes several of the other hits on the album 
including Opposites Attract, but It's Just the Way That You Love Me. Again, moderate R&B hit. This song is very Control era Janet sounding to me. I mean, it really has that Minneapolis industrial funk sounding song. And I think if there's anything nice that you can say about Paula's voice, it's that it's very rhythmic. It makes sense because she's a dancer, but I feel like she has a real sense of rhythm when she sings. There are certain ways she phrases around this sort of really percussive music that actually works really well in a way that does remind me of Janet's, even though her voice is even thinner and tannier than Janet's is. There's that big slapping electronic bass, those thudding crisp drum noises, pseudo New Jack Swing feel to it. I was going to say it's a post-New Jack Swing record. It exists in a world of peak New Jack Swing at a moment when Bobby Brown is scoring his biggest hits. Yeah. It does go top 10 R&B, It's Just the Way That You Love Me, in its first release before they even try it as a pop radio promotion. Yeah. But it does nothing on the pop side. And so finally, it's straight up this record that is kind of buried on the album. It's seventh in a 10-song track listing. So nobody necessarily sees it as the obvious hit. And let me say this about Straight Up. It's easily my favorite of the songs on Forever Your Girl. Oh, yeah. I think it's most people's favorite Paul Abdul song. I don't think I'm pushing it when I say that. It's probably her most iconic hit. Oh, yeah. But if I may sound like I'm insulting it for a moment, there's something a little cheap and tinny sounding about Straight Up. Definitely that I think works in its favor. The simplicity of Straight Up, the uncluttered of Straight Up is kind of what makes it work. It sounds like a record that was produced on an indie budget for five bucks in somebody's basement. And yet it kind of slaps. Oh yeah. It's real simple. It sounds almost like a demo, which it kind of basically was. Right. And supposedly Paula Abdul's mother found the song for her. Right. Her mother knew someone whose boyfriend was an aspiring songwriter and Straight Up was this eight-track demo and the demo version was really bad and Abdul's mother almost threw it in the trash. The record label didn't think the song was any good, but Abdul offered to record anything they wanted if they would let her do Straight Up. The song was recorded, according to this Wikipedia entry, for a budget of $3,000. In Elliot Wolf's shower, or did I make that up? The song was originally recorded in a bathroom, yeah. and in the masters of the recording, someone in the next apartment can be heard yelling, shut up. Yeah. Nobody thought anything of this record, yeah. and yet it's the cheapness and the simplicity of Straight Up that makes it work. Yeah. I think the reason they went with it is because it was starting to score some airplay independently without getting any promotion. Yeah. Not a ton, but enough that like DJs were independently jumping on this record yeah, yeah, without yeah. Virgin America doing a goddamn thing for it. Yeah. And so they finally decided to put some muscle and some firepower. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't at this point mention the music video, which not only features some spectacular Paul Abdul choreography, both her dancing and the other people she's got dancing in the video. Including some tap dancing, which alludes again to her sort of MGM facet. Right. I mean, the video kicks off with a musicless break where all Paula is doing is tap dancing at like triple time speed, which is just dazzling to watch. It's really impressive. (laughs) 
Not only that, the video is directed by David Fincher. Yeah. David Fincher, the future Oscar-nominated filmmaker, who at this point is mostly known as the auteur of MTV. This is the man who has directed Express Yourself for Madonna and Vogue. He's directed Janie's Got a Gun for Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. He's directed multiple videos for Don Henley. If it looks expensive and sleek and slick and like the video cost a million dollars, David Fincher probably directed it. Right. And I don't even think this is the most expensive video David Fincher has ever done. It's kind of got this blown out lighting look that was very hot at the end of the 80s. And it's black and white and it's actually quite simple and it's got lots of close-ups. It's got very kinetic camera movement where sometimes the camera is literally shaking along with the dance moves that Paula and crew are doing. But it's just a blast to watch and it kind of makes the kineticism of the song that much more kinetic. Yes, agree. The video is incredible, so stylish, so incredible. And I completely am with you on the sort of chintziness of the song being a selling point. That chintzy keyboardy flute noise that everybody will recognize about the song. Do, 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 do. I mean, it's literally sounds like it was made on a Casio keyboard, and yet it's instantly recognizable. And your friend and mine, Tom Bryan, wrote in his number ones column about the song. It's one of those songs where looking back on it, you can't understand how people didn't listen to this and know it was this monster hit. It's one of those things where it's like, how did you not recognize this? And at the same time, we can never go back in time and recognize what it must have felt like to hear this song before it was a hit and maybe think that it sounded cheap and chintzy. The thing that makes it stand out to me, and we'll get into the rest of the music on Forever Girl in a second is so much as I was sort of alluding to earlier of Paula Abdul's on-record persona and many of the records that define Forever Your Girl is this kind of very simplistic, upbeat, positive puppy love persona that she sort of has. All of these songs have these lovey-dovey, they're devotional is the word that I kept thinking of. The album's literally called Forever Your Girl. The entire persona is about devotional puppy love. This and my other favorite song on the record, which is Cold Hearted, which are the two Elliot Wolf songs, are the only two songs on the record that ditch that and go for something with a little bit more friction. A little bite. A little bite. This song has a little bit of anxiety, paranoia that defines a lot of great 80s hits from Billie Jean to Pop Don't Reach, whatever. There's this feeling of confusion. She's looking for something she's not getting. There's hunger for sex and love. There's a feeling that she's not going to get it. There's this demanding ship up or shape out sort of persona to it. This record has a lot more depth and layers to it than I think a lot of her canonical music does. And I think that that's one of the things that really made it stand out to me listening to this record a few times. I'm just like, this song sounds different than every other Paula Abdul song, pretty much. I said, maybe Cold Hearted aside. And it's those layers that I think make the song, on top of just having a pretty unstoppable, incredible hook to it, really stand out. And I think it's the reason that maybe it transcends the moment in a way that some of her other music doesn't. I mean, we keep comparing her and saying that she exists in the shadow of both Madonna and Janet Jackson. Yeah. And Straight Up is the first record where Paula Abdul sounds like she has the sass and the attitude and the assertiveness of a Madonna or a Janet Jackson. Totally. The same assertiveness you hear on Nasty. The same assertiveness you hear on Into the Groove. Yes. That forcefulness of, so are you going to tell me or what? Yes. That assertiveness is all over straight up and I think that's why it was the breakthrough. Not to mention the really, really funny delivery of the iconic bridge where she goes, if you're just playing games, I just have to say, Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three 
Yes, three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today. So Straight Up becomes a number one smash, a gigantic hit, and it opens the door for an imperial phase as you were getting at earlier. This record becomes an absolute blockbuster. Let's walk through the rest of the music on this album. What's happening on the rest of Forever Girl? And we can sort of talk about it maybe through some of the hits as they unfurl here. Straight up, you talk about imperial periods. It grows in imperiality as the year goes on. It's not necessarily clear in the immediate wake of Straight Up that Paul Abdul is guaranteed to score multiple hits, let alone four number one hits from a single album, which is kind of a stunning record for somebody on a debut album to pull off. But little by little, this record sort of becomes undeniable. The fourth single and the second number one hit is the title track, Forever Your Girl, which is a little closer to that Paul Abdul persona you were talking about before, the kind of sweet persona. It's got another David Fincher-directed video, also in black and white. It's kind of adorable. You actually see Paula Abdul in her... They're trying to sell her as the choreographer. She's actually teaching choreographed moves to a little kid. It's kind of cute to the extreme. Which is a theme to a lot of music videos that seem to play up the I'm a choreographer thing that happened. We'll come back to that again in Cold Hearted. That's clearly something they insert into this a lot, into the story of this record, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I don't like Forever Your Girl, the song, nearly as much as I like Straight Up. I find it a little cloying, but... But it sounded like total 1989 uber pop music. It fit right into the pocket. And I'll say this, it makes sense as the choice for the next single because it rounds out the Paul Abdul image so that you're not just doing the sass, you're also doing the sweetness. Because I think the sweetness, to a point you were making earlier, is part of what sells Paul Abdul. Adorable is a good word, I think, actually. You said it about the video, but I think it's a greater word to describe what Paula comes across as in a lot of this. She's cute. She's adorable. I think that that's a good word. Exactly. Which is then followed up by your second favorite and my second favorite track on the album, Cold Hearted, sometimes known better as Cold Hearted Snake. And this one is kind of an homage to the choreography of Bob Fosse. Yes. It's got that Chicago slash cabaret energy. It's the first of these high gloss music videos from this album that is not in black and white. It's in full color. Yes. It's Paula, again, choreographing a large team of dancers and they're all rubbing and grinding against each other. So before you get too far away from the sassy version of Paula, the sexy version of Paula, this is easily the sexiest song on Forever Your Girl. Yes. And the song, part of what I like about it is it again has that well-deployed cheapness to it. There's these little blips and bleeps that sound like they're all coming out of a programmed Yamaha keyboard.
but it's mechanized to a fault and it's kinetic and it works as standalone pop music and it works as something you can choreograph to for the music video. Yeah, and once again comes forward with the bite, with the friction. There's more layers to the persona here than you get on Forever Your Girl. There's a jilted feeling and there's an aggression that works really well with her and I think allows also for some of the best choreography because man, the choreography in this video is so amazing. Such virtuosic choreo going on. It's incredibly well shot. She is so at her peak in terms of pure performance. Mother is eating, as we might say, in our common parlance. <laughs> she's really in it. And she is giving more of the sex forward thing. She's got on this kind of sheer shirt and the bra is out and she's feeding into a little bit more of, I'm not that innocent, to quote another pop star. I think there's a little bit of a vibe of she doesn't want to be pigeonholed as cutesy. So I absolutely love this song. This song is definitely, as you mentioned, my second favorite on the record. All right, so that's our third number one. That's our third number one. And now if you're keeping count, that's the fifth single. Now things get a little complicated. For the sixth single, they go back to the second single. Yeah. which was, it's just the way that you love me. And they determine that now she's entering an imperial phase. And by the way, Forever Your Girl, the album, goes to number one on the album chart in October of 1989 after we've already scored three number one hits from this album. So this is the moment where Paula is nearing actual imperiality, where almost anything she releases. So talk about a before and after. Before, it's just the way that you love me in like late 88, peaked at number 10 on the R&B chart and did nothing on the Hot 100. Just under a year later, they go back to that well. They re-promote It's Just the Way That You Love Me. They give it a new music video directed by David Fincher. It's very sleek. And suddenly they promote it to pop radio. And now pop radio will play anything Paula Abdul puts out. And it peaks at number three. Yeah. So it does break her streak of number one hits. But it's still impressive that this song, which is, again, kind of a perfectly serviceable second tier New Jack Swing kind of jam. Yeah. That... Now it can be a top three record where before it couldn't even touch the Hot 100. Yes. So we've got The Way You Love Me and then we've got one more number one hit to come out of this record that I think maybe is more memorable for its music video in ways that maybe Paula wouldn't want it to be memorable. I'm not totally sure. Is this song remembered as a joke? Is this video remembered as a joke? Anyway, it's opposites attract. Let's talk about this song a little bit and the music video which features the iconic support of the erstwhile MC Scat Cat, a cartoon rapping cat. Yeah, so... How do, how do we describe opposites attract? I mean, we, we used the word cuddly or adorable a little while ago. Yeah. This is the most adorable, and I say that with a bit of contempt. Maybe it's too adorable, perhaps, for some. I mean, it's in the title, opposites attract, and the whole video is, you like this, I like that, he does this, yeah. I do that. Yeah. I mean, it's as obvious as it sounds. Yeah. To talk about the origin of the song, it's written by Oliver Lieber. They have to set it up as a duet because the only way it works is he does this, I do that. She does this, I do that. <laughs> the only way to do that is you need a male voice. So Paul Abdul records it with a pair of dudes who call themselves the Wild Pair. Yeah. However, when we now tap this song as the either sixth or seventh single, depending on how you count, it's just the way that you love me. Yeah. We're now really deep into the album. And taking a step back, 
The common practice for hit albums in the 80s going into the early 90s was that if you had a hit, you just kept trying to milk that album for singles. Right, exactly. It's like the opposite of now where they move on from these albums in one single and we're done with exactly. it. Exactly. They would work these records for years and years and try to get every single hit they could out of it. Whether the album is Michael Jackson's Bad, George Michael's Faith, yeah. Madonna's Like a Prayer, Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl, Def Leppard's Hysteria. These albums were worked for five, six, seven singles. Yeah. So we're now on, depending on how you count, the seventh single or the sixth song yeah. from Forever Your Girl. And it shows you that they chose this for last, and it goes to number one anyway. For the music video, the wild pair are nowhere to be seen. Instead, Roger Rabbit style, Paul Abdul is singing and dancing with an animated cat who calls himself MC Scat Cat. And yeah, MC Scat Cat is just what it sounds like. He's kind of Poochie eight years before Poochie, if that Simpsons reference means anything to you, yeah, like yeah, a yeah, rapping yeah. animal that's trying really hard to be cool. They even record a brand new rap for MC Scat Cat talking about his quote, homegirl, Paul Abdul. Yeah. But there's trust. I'm like a minus, she's like a plus. One going up, one coming down. But we seem to land on common ground. If things go wrong, we make corrections to keep things moving in the right direction. Try to fight it, but I'm telling you, Jack, it's useless. Opposites attract. But to be kind for a moment, the inspiration is pure for this one. You know, this is part of Paula's obsession with Gene Kelly. The video is inspired by Anchors Away, which is a movie where Gene Kelly dances with Jerry Mouse from Tom and Jerry. So there's a wonderful Hollywood backstory to why they did this video. I just happen to think the song is crap, personally. It's one of those songs where it's like, if it wasn't the seventh single, no one would ever have made this a single or recognized it in any sort of way. <laughs> ever. This song would have been buried yes. if Forever Your Girl was not now a multi-platinum success. And by the way, to cut to the chase, Forever Your Girl winds up going back back to number one multiple times in late 88, 9, and early 1990. It spends 10 weeks at number one. It's kind of like the default number one album of that period of the winter of 89, 90. Right. And success breeds success with this album. This is when, to use that capital I word you used earlier, this is the moment where Paul Abdul is truly imperial, where a third-rate song like this can become a number one hit. And for better or for worse, it's one of Paul Abdul's most memorable hits. I don't particularly care for it. But when you talk about Paul Abdul with fans, they're going to mention Opposites Attract because that video is so iconic. The video, I think, also is emblematic of both everything that you're talking about, that she could do no wrong. She could release a C-level song and have a number one hit. She could release this ridiculous video and it was a big deal, whatever. But I also think it sort of presages some problems that Paula is going to have later on, which is that this cutesiness, this move towards schmaltz or whatever, is something that is going to hinder her from doing what the peers that have longer careers that she's up against here are able to do, which is to continuously convert into more dynamic and interesting and deeper artists. And I think when I look at this video, I see how the public might have a problem moving on from the MC Scat Cat version of Paula Abdul <laughs> to accepting her as something more than that. Or perhaps that maybe she's just not the type of visionary artist that knows how to move herself out of that into something else artfully in a way that allows people to accept her that way. Because there's something here that I think does sort of 
illustrate why maybe Paulette's career is stuck in time somehow like in this moment. And when I watch this video, I think nothing else speaks to that more than looking at this music video, even as big of a hit as this was. All right. So you were saying for every girl, 10 weeks at number one, I believe it goes seven times platinum. Septuple platinum, which I cannot imagine anybody at Virgin America or Abdul herself saw that coming. That is beyond the beyond. It's huge. Can you just characterize just for people to understand how she is viewed, let's say in 1990, where she sits in the pop firmament amongst some of these other people we're talking about? How big of a star is Paula Abdul at this exact moment? I would call her, say, A minus. Yeah. In the sense that is she Madonna? Is she Michael? Is she Janet? Is she Prince? No, not quite. But with this album and this many hits, she's at least at a Bobby Brown level. Let's put it that way. Yes, right. She is at that tier of hit generating stardom, consistency, and she's likable. She shows up on award shows, not just to receive awards, but to give out awards. She shows up at the Grammys and gives out an award. She shows up at the American Music Awards and gives out an award. Is it like a Katy Perry-esque kind of thing? As Katy Perry pertains to Gaga and Beyonce or something, where she's got this big record, you could sort of draw a corollary here with Teenage Dream in some ways. That's not a bad comparison. That never occurred to me, but I take your point in the sense that Teenage Dream, two decades later, generates five number one hits, and yet Katy Perry never quite gets that's past A minus level stardom, I would say. Right. That's a fair comparison, I think. Yeah. And what about critically? Can we talk about how critics view this music? Because I think that's a major thing that a lot of these bigger tier pop stars are aspiring for is to be taken seriously. They want their work to have ambition, to have scope, to sort of take the elements of dance pop and turn it into something that is taken seriously by the music establishment. How is Paula Abdul received and Forever Your Girl received in a critical sense? You know, one thing I checked, just because I was curious about this, and I had a feeling it would do all right. I checked the Paz and Jop Critics Poll from The Village Voice yeah. from 1989, just out of curiosity to see if anything made it. And there it is, down at number 23 on the singles list, the critics ranked straight up wow. as one of the best singles of the year. So were the critics checking for Paula Abdul in 1989? No, not at all. She got where she got. I frankly think this album, because it was such a sleeper hit yeah. and took three singles to even grow, I don't even recall it getting reviews good, bad, or indifferent in 1988 when it came out. Yeah. And then by the time she scores with that string of straight up number one hits, no pun intended, she was kind of beyond critical approbation at that point. Critics kind of didn't have a role to play. I'm impressed that Straight Up made the lower rungs of the singles list in Paz and Jop, just because that indicates that there was at least some respect for the kind of almost hip-hop adjacent vibe of Straight Up. Straight Up kind of mm. almost sounds like a salt and pepper record to a critic. It's got that admirable cheapness that works in a hip-hop context. Right. You could say it's gritty. Exactly. There's something a little gritty about Straight Up that yeah. no other Paul Abdul record really has. Yeah. In thinking back, sometimes you're able, when you have a new artist breakthrough in this way, and as you mentioned, they don't get a ton of critical notice on the big record, you can sort of retroactively get that through reading later reviews of their music. And the vibe that I get is that everybody is really focused on the fact that she's manufactured and can't sing. I mean, that seems to be yes. the overarching critical assessment of this music is they do not take her seriously. I think people might be acknowledging straight up because it's kind of undeniable. But what I could tell from most critics reviewing her next record, which we're about to talk about, is Paula Abdul, she can't sing. She got lucky with the string of hits because she's a good dancer and she had the right team around her. There's that classic kind of raucous vibe that critics have as they look at her as this is somebody that's completely manufactured and really doesn't have a lot of talent. That was sort of the 
vibe that I got from the critics thinking about Paul in this period. I take your point that that attitude really starts to come out in 1991 when she comes back with a sophomore album, because in a sense, she almost got a buy on the first record because it's so snuck up on everybody that right. there wasn't much the critics had to say about Forever Your Girl, just as a practical matter, because Forever Your Girl is a 1988 album, but it scores all its hits in 89 and 90. It's not going to be up for Grammys. It's not going to make critics 10 best or worst lists. It sort of sleeps through 1988 and then all of a sudden dominates the field in 89 and 90, yeah. such that critics didn't have to express an opinion about it. It all starts to come out later. Right. I think the only reason that I wanted to highlight how people might have been perceiving her and her artistry is because, A, one thing that we haven't brought up is she gets sued at one point by a backup singer who claims that she sung the vocals on the record, or at least that she sung a bunch of the vocals on the record. So again, they're sort of reinforcing this narrative that she can't sing. And then when she does return with the lead single from her next record, 1991, this is Rush Rush, this ballad that's obviously meant to say, hey, I can sing, it feels as though she is feeling the need to address that through her music. It feels in the sense that Rush Rush exists in a way as an answer to what seems to be an overarching narrative. All right, let's talk about Spellbound. So obviously huge pressure to follow up such a blockbuster record. It's a really tall order. I think only the greatest pop stars in the world are able to deliver on following up a record that's that big. What do you think she's changing in her approach here? What do you think she has to prove? And who does she turn to to help her do that? What is she doing on this album and who is helping her try to achieve that vision? Well, okay, so for Spellbound... It comes out in the summer of 1991. She teams up with a duo who call themselves The Family Stand. Their real names are Peter Lord and Vernon Jeffrey Smith. The Family Stand are a New York City-based R&B duo who had never really had much success themselves, but they seem to have a sound that Paula keys into. And they wind up producing a big chunk of Spellbound. A lot of the hits from Spellbound are basically family stand records that Paula Abdul has worked on with them. She does get some co-writing credit on Spellbound. So mm -hmm. I think in a way, to your point in your setup, Paula Abdul is trying to prove A, I can sing and B, I can write. Yes. I'm legit. I'm one of these Machiavellian big deal pop stars. Madonna, all of them are attempting to sort of prove these same points, I feel like in some ways. Exactly. And so on Spellbound, she's been basically leaning into that vibe. Mm -hmm. And then for the first single, Rush Rush, they go with a ballad. Remember, we went six singles deep, seven if you count the re-release, on Forever Your Girl. And other than Forever Your Girl, the song, which is kind of a mid-tempo pop number, yeah. none of them were ballads, not a single one. There isn't even really a ballad on the record, I don't think. No, none to speak of. Yeah. So I think as part of the leaning into the, quote, artistry vibe, Paula wants to write, she wants to prove she can sing, and she wants to prove she can sing a ballad. Yes. <laughs> 
I will say there's a ballad on Spellbound that I genuinely love. I think it's a little batshit and I love it and we're going to talk about it later. Yeah. And there's Rush Rush, which I don't love. Mm. I feel a little bit about Rush Rush the way I feel about Rihanna's Unfaithful, which is kind of the earliest moment where Rihanna is trying to sing a ballad. Oh, what an interesting comp. Yeah. And I think Rihanna became a pretty great ballad singer later on records like Take a Bow or Diamonds. Yeah, or Stay. Or Stay. Stay is a phenomenal record and she sings her butt off on that record. But I feel like on Unfaithful, she was still figuring out phrasing. She was still figuring out how you're supposed to sing a ballad. Mm -hmm. The damning thing with Paula Abdul is that by Rush Rush, she had access to all the best of the best in the business. And I just don't think it's a terribly well-sung ballad. Mm. But this is Paula Abdul in her capital I imperial moment. Anything she produces is going to go to number one. And sure enough, Rush Rush shoots to number one and stays there for five weeks. So it's a massive hit in the summer of 1991. I'm going to come to Rush Rush's defense a little bit, although I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. And I'm not going to come to bat and say like Paula sang this with some sort of virtuosity or anything. But I find Rush Rush really, really sweet and compelling. And again, I think it plays into one of her strengths, which is her cuteness and her earnestness, this feeling of just adorableness. There's something convincing to me about her sort of desperately pining for somebody. That's something that sort of suits her personality. And I find her convincingly moving on this song. I can feel her emotions on it and I don't mind this song. I actually like Rush Rush, so I'm just going to come to Rush Rush's defense quickly here. Fair enough. (laughs) I was definitely not a fan, but Rush Rush was all that that album needed. Yes. And was a smart move, I think. It was a smart move. It was a canny commercial move. I'll say that. Yeah. We would be remiss if we did not talk about the music video. Yes. Which Rush Rush's music video is its own specific thing. It's basically a near shot for shot remake of Rebel Without a Cause, including the iconic drag race between two cars, co-starring, wait for it, wait for it, Keanu Reeves. At the peak of Keanu Reeves. This is Keanu Reeves at his early Imperial moment after Bill and Ted, after he's been in Dangerous Liaisons, when he's kind of getting cast in everything, Keanu Reeves is the James Dean figure. Yes. Which should speak to the level of Paula's fame at this moment that she's able to pull that off. Exactly. Yeah. And she's basically Natalie Wood, which is self-flattery, but good for Paula. (laughs) Wow, drag her. I know, I'm dragging pretty hard, but you know, (laughs) Natalie Wood in the 1950s is kind of like the icon of the movies, and Paula casting herself as Natalie Wood in this music video, that's kind of the move you pull when you are at the peak of your popularity. And good for her. She looks fantastic in the video. No shade on that. Yeah, she does. So this record, as you said, number one hit. Seems like she's broken the sophomore slump thing with this record. What about the rest of this album? What's happening on the rest of Spellbound? And is she achieving what she wanted to in terms of widening the scope of what she does or deepening her artistry in meaningful ways? Well, for the second single, she gets another number one hit, what turns out to be her last number one hit, with another family stand record produced by the duo The Family Stand that she gets a co-writing credit on called The Promise of a New Day. Yes. And it's kind of a inspirational dance pop record. It exploded onto the charts. It got to number one in just a few weeks. It featured this rather sexy music video with Paula dancing in a waterfall and wearing a skimpy, skin-tight outfit. Paula's leaning into her attractiveness, and good for her. I just want to say one thing again here, Chris, and I don't mean to bring her up all the time just because she is my favorite pop star, but the Janet influence is inescapable here. I mean, this is a post-Rhythm Nation concept. I mean, we're dealing with the idea that maybe 
what you do on your second album is you do something with political awareness or consciousness. And this song is right. much less effectively than like a Rhythm Nation or some of those great songs from that record gesturing towards that idea. The lyrics are like, so time over time, what will change the world? No one knows. So the only promise is a day to live, to give and to share with one another. It's very pop, socio-political consciousness record. And then of course, she's once again mimicking Janet's turn towards sexiness and that incredible Herb Ritz music video for Love Will Never Do Without You where she's on the beach. And this was one of those moments where I was like, this is chintzy Janet knockoff vibes going on here. Yeah, move for move, very much like a post-Janet vibe. And to your point, the lyrics are so inoffensive. Say this for Janet, on some of the lyrics on Rhythm Nation, even though Janet didn't necessarily always get specific, she made some detailed points that had some real bite to them. Bite and the way that she delivers it is with this dark, deep passion that gives them meaning. I mean, you listen to Rhythm Nation and you really feel a call to arms through a dance pop song in a way that Paul Abdul does not have the capacity to deliver. Exactly. But yet Paula's at the sort of tail end of her imperial phase. She can get this record to number one. It's got an agreeable mid-tempo dance pop sound. It's got a slick, glossy music video. I wrote this video as a tribute to saving the rainforest and also her being sexy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I need to say nothing more. That is exactly right. That's what the video is about. I want to save the rainforest and I am hot. Yes. What else is there? Right. All right. So that's the second and last number one. What else we got on this? Then comes the ballad that I think is kind of batshit, but which I confess to kind of loving. It's a record called Blowing Kisses on the Wind. Yeah. I don't know if you could call this her Eleanor Rigby move. It's kind of like Paula (laughs) Abdul does something vaguely classically orchestrated. I'm dying. And it shouldn't work. I know people who think it's terrible. I kind of love it. I think it's so batshit Uh and over the top. And the way Paula sings it is a little over the top top that I kind of love this record. I'm here for this take. Okay. Yeah. It's very aching and tormented and heightened. The video has people floating in midair. It's got some of that patented Paul Abdul choreography on a soundstage. Yeah. It's a little much in many ways, but I kind of at the time remember admiring Paul Abdul for going for it. Yeah. It seems like all of these songs in some ways are going for it. I will say that that's something that you could say speaks to the ambition or speaks to her understanding perhaps of the mechanics of pop stardom, even if she's not the best at executing them, is she knew she had to find a way to like retain her essence, but also stretch the project here. So you get the ballad. These are all things that she was not doing on Forever Your Girl. If we can throw her bone here in this moment, I think that's one we could throw her. She's clearly going for something here. She's not just sort of sitting and recreating Forever Your Girl songs. It's funny, going back and reviewing Paula's discography before we talked, I developed a little more respect for Spellbound as an album than I had at the time because I'm like, okay, say this for her. Yeah, It's not a retread exactly of Forever Your Girl. It's not as if she said, okay, checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. No. There's nothing on Forever Your Girl like Blowing Kisses in the Wind. No, not at all. There's nothing on Forever Your Girl like Rush Rush, even though I didn't love it. No. Even Promise of a New Day, as chintzy as it is, she's really trying something there. Yeah, she's going for it. Give her her props in that regard. For the record, Blowing Kisses in the Wind is Paul Abdul's last top 10 hit. It peaks at number six. Right. You can feel the air coming out of the balloon here a little bit, Chris, as this record unfurls. If we were thinking about Forever Your Girl as this kind of moss 
gather it, whatever I'm losing the phrase, but it's like a snowballing effect. Snowball rolling downhill. <laughs> that one. This feels kind of like the opposite where it's like the snowball was rolling and we're at the bottom of the hill and now it's summer and the snowball is starting to melt. The snowball is melting. <laughs> yeah. It has lost momentum and it is melting. <laughs> so Ford singles Vibology, which is a camp classic, I think in some ways maybe. And it leans into what you keep calling, and I agree, cute Paula. Yeah, right. It's main hook. I'm in a funky way. I can't believe I just allowed those words to escape my lips. It's so cheesy, yeah. but it's a memorable hook. And it's incorporating elements of house music, which is obviously the ascendant form of dance pop. She's clearly trying to morph her sound away from the industrial funk of the late 80s and the New Jack Swing vibes of Forever Girl and into the post-Vogue era of big tent pop music that's incorporating house music elements into it. By the time this record goes top 20, and by the way, it peaks at number 16 on the Hot 100, we are now living in a world post-CNC Music Factory, post-Everybody, Everybody by Black Box, Pop House is Ascendant, and this is as close as Paul Abdul is going to get to that pocket. And then as these singles unfurl, they become less and less successful. You've got... Will You Marry Me, which is the fifth single. I don't even know how to describe it. It's talk about cheesy. I mean, this is the corniest shit I ever heard in my life, I gotta say. Yeah. My memory at the time, and I was in college when all this was happening, was that Paul Abdul was dating Emilio Estevez, the actor, and that her releasing Will You Marry Me on her album and then making it a single was basically this naked, like, so are you going to marry me or what move? Right. It's her single, Ladies Put a Ring on It. Kind of. I don't recall how long she and Estevez were together after that, but I guess it did what it needed to do at the time. Right. And as we mentioned, these songs are increasingly less successful. So I'm curious in thinking about that, we were just talking about where Paula was sitting in the pop firmament following Forever Your Girl. How would you characterize this record? Here on the one hand, you have a sophomore album that had a couple number one singles, including one that was a big smash, five weeks of number one, Rush Rush, whatever, and another top 10. Not a flop by any means, but at the same time, looking back on it feels as though it was representative of people losing interest in her simultaneously. How does she come out of this period? Well, it's a triple platinum album, which is not 7 million. It's not as well as Forever Your Girl. If you want to be charitable, and this was my vibe at the time, you say to yourself, considering this woman was a choreographer first, a singer second, it's kind of impressive that she went this far. I mean, if we're going to look at the glasses half full, that's five top 20 hits, three of them top tens, two of them number ones from this album. That's not a bad record for a sophomore album. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's really quite respectable. On the other hand, is she Janet? Janet scored five top five hits from Control. She then proceeded to outsell Control with Rhythm Nation and score four number one hits. So there are artists who follow up their breakthrough with an even bigger album. Paula does not. It's how do you view this success? Is it impressive that she did as well as she did? Or is it a big fall off? I would call it a medium fall off. I was impressed she did as well as she did. But then there's kind of a long gap between Spellbound and her next album, Head Over Heels, which doesn't come around until 1995. And by then, the landscape has changed radically. Yeah. Now we are deeply 
specifically into the hip hop era where pop and R&B acts have to live in a world that hip hop created even more than they did during the New Jack Swing era. Yeah. I would also say that now that we know roughly how long her imperial phase lasted, basically it lasts from about mid to late 89 through the first two singles of Spellbound in 91. Right. Paul Abdul's kind of an in-between figure in pop history in the sense that if you consider the 90s being what I call the decade of grunge and gangsta, whether it's, you know, Nirvana or Dr. Dre, and you consider the 80s being the decade of Michael and Madonna, Paula sits between these poles. She's kind of a transitional figure. In a way, it's appropriate to me that her hits are all scored from 1989 into 91, meaning the turn into the 90s. She's an artist who probably, to echo a point you made at the beginning of this conversation, couldn't have had her hits any other time because she needs to exist in a world where dancing and that kind of showmanship was necessary, but she was never going to be hard enough to compete with, say, TLC on the charts, right? Right. To talk about somebody you were just talking about on your show a few weeks ago. Yeah. She's not going to compete with the likes of Tony Braxton on voice or TLC in terms of sass or hip-hop adjacency. And she's not going to be able to pivot in the way that Janet was into, like, fully embracing those aesthetics. Yes. The thing that Janet pulled off so artfully on her self-titled record in 1993 was that she very fluidly was able to make records that felt conversant with those groups and that sound without losing her essence. And that was the pivot that allowed her to have it. And even artists like Madonna, I think, struggled in the early 90s with exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you think about erotica and bedtime stories. I mean, again, she's Madonna. These are successful albums in one sense, but they're much less successful than her 80s Imperial records. Exactly. And they're both records where she is grappling with hip hop and house and all of these ascendant genres and not quite at the peak of her commercial success. So it is a moment where there's a lot of shifting going on in music. I think the other thing is that clearly, even in the midst of her imperial moment or as the imperial moment is losing steam, people are already losing interest in her, it feels like, through the end of the Spellbound campaign. The fact that she then basically takes four years off, as we mentioned, she marries Emilio Estevez, they get divorced. She also has this very public battle where she talks about her bulimia and goes to rehab, which is this incredible unique thing at that time period for someone to be that open about having an eating disorder, which she is given a lot of props for, whatever. But the truth is, four years is a long time, even if she was coming off of something that we could have characterized as an unmitigated success. But four years in between a record that's a slightly lesser success that might have been gesturing towards bigger problems with people's interest in this artist feels deathly. It's almost like whatever she came back with in 1995, I don't know what she could have done necessarily. It just felt like, for whatever reason, her exact career where it was, it just felt like by the time you get to 1995, what does Paula Abdul have to do with pop music at that point? They're just not in sync with each other anymore. And then she's not dynamic of an artist enough to figure out how to make that work for herself. And then you go listen to the Head Over Heels, which comes out in 1995, and you see her attempting this. I mean, she's working with Dallas Austin. I mean, she's literally getting people collaborating with her that are trying to sort of remake her in the mold of the sound of the moment. And these songs just aren't gelling. They don't work. I mean, I don't know if you have anything to say about Head Over Heels that would be surprising to me. I find this album to be, it's not horrible. It's not like an unmitigated disaster, but it's also not memorable. And none of the songs really stand out to me in meaningful ways. I kind of liked the first single, My Love Is For Real, which goes to number 28 on the charts in 1995. In a way, again, not to always look at the glasses half full, but the fact that Paul Abdul could come back from a four-year absence in 1995 and get a top 40 hit of any kind is in its way kind of impressive. Yeah. And it's also rocking a bit of a trip hop and a Middle Eastern vibe. Yeah. Which is funny because given her heritage on her father's side, the fact that she's finally leaning into her Middle Eastern heritage is kind of clever in its way. 
It's very pop star by numbers, though, Chris. I agree. That's the thing that I keep thinking about her. It's very much like, okay, so what do I do now? I lean into my marriage. I mean, I agree. This is a fine song, but the first thing that came into my head was, this is not as good as Confide in Me. There's just this thing with her sometimes. On For Every Girl, those songs stand up on their own. On a lot of Paula Abdul's music, I just feel this sense of these are imitations or paler versions of songs that more dynamic and interesting pop stars do better than her. And at this point in the whole thing, I couldn't stop thinking about that. There's songs on here that sound like TLC cast-offs. There's songs that sound like erotica cast-offs. There's things going on here where I'm just like, this just feels like it's doing what better pop stars are doing not nearly as well. I agree. No argument there. Yeah. And that's kind <laughs> of it for Paul Abdul as a hit-making artist. I mean, yeah. she really yeah. never comes back to the top 40 again. She doesn't release another album. <laughs> Maybe this is her acknowledging that her moment has passed. And there's a version of this story, and I'm just totally speculating here, yeah. where she realizes that, well, if I can't do what I did in 1989, 1991, I don't want to be in this game and I can still be a choreographer and do other things. And so she leans into what she's good at. And I kind of respect that. I do too. And we haven't even talked about what happens to her in the new millennium, which is kind of the most improbable thing. Right. And in a way, it's what she's most known for almost more than any of this stuff at this point, I think. As Chris was saying, she releases this third album that's a huge flop, doesn't perform particularly well. She never releases another record record again in the mid to late 90s she does a few little random things including which i think will be a fun little factoid for people to listen to this podcast writing kylie minogue's comeback single spinning around in the late 90s and she also choreographs some sequences in american beauty but of course paula abdul is maybe most memorable to many listeners of this podcast for her stint judging the cultural juggernaut that is american idol Let's find out what this tough trio is looking for. Singer, songwriter, dancer, choreographer, and pop diva legend, Paula Abdul. Well, what'd you think? My perspective would be absolutely different from the other two judges because I'm an artist. Why was that such a good fit? And what is it about Paula that allowed her to be such an important ingredient to this mega thing, which is kind of a non sequitur for a singing show to employ somebody that wasn't exactly known to be a virtuoso singer. I mean, this was a show in which Kelly Clarkson, one of the greatest singers of her generation, was the person that they were crowning. And you're dealing with someone that was a laughing stock for her singing voice, even at the peak of her success. It's a funny little combination. Yeah, at the time, there was a lot of snark about that that. Yeah. The brain trusted American Idol was never going to come out and say this, but they were not hiring Paula Abdul to be a judge on that show to opine on the vocal range of the people singing. <laughs> she was trying to opine on presence and star quality. Yeah. And I'll say this one snarky thing about Paul Abdul, given that the first decade of American Idol, those peak imperial years of American Idol in the aughts, yeah. were the only time I was regularly watching American Idol myself. Yes. Paul Abdul would frequently frustrate me with the kind of her meandering judgments. Yeah. Simon always gives you a shop. That was the worst thing I ever heard. Randy had his pet phrases like, it's not for me, dog. But yeah, right. Paul was kind of vague and meandering and, well, you did your thing and that kind of thing. Paula? Oh, gosh. We've never had to write these things down fast enough. Um, Jason, the first song, I loved hearing your lower register, which we never really hear. Um, the second song, I felt like your usual charm wasn't, it was missing for me. It kind of left me a little empty. And uh, the two songs made me feel like you're not fighting hard enough to, to get into the top four. So... David Cook? No, we should just, just on the first song now. Just on the first one. Just on the first I song. I thought you, I'm, oh my God, I thought you sang twice. 
Wow. Just See, once. But no, Paula, just one, just Paula, you, <laughs> you're seeing the future, baby. You're seeing the future. You know what? She's coming back. All right. This Actually, is hard. Okay, Paula, Paula. No, it's David. Paula, who is your favorite? Who is your favorite? Who is your favorite? Paula, who is your favorite? You know what? I'm looking at it's your notes, David. You're fantastic. But at the same time, Paula kind of had the last laugh and lasted a remarkably long time on that show because I think her charisma, her friendliness, her approachability, frankly, the same things that got her hired all over Hollywood in the late 80s and early 90s, made her a friendly, approachable presence on American Idol, also on a show where typically the comments would go Simon, then Paula, then Randy, or sometimes Randy, then Paula, then Simon. Either way, she was coming after somebody who was bound to be harsher than she was. I think the contestants appreciated that Paula had this kind of Earth Mother vibe that was soothing. Yes. She was like your drunk aunt. Right. And there was often a joke of what's in that Coca-Cola cup that yeah. she's always drinking from. <laughs> but if you are up on stage and shitting a brick because you've just performed for millions of people, Paul Abdul is a reassuring presence. To argue the other side, if Paul Abdul says something negative about your performance, you probably really fucked up. Really sucked. Yeah. Yeah. Because Paula said nice things about virtually everybody. But Paula's role was not to judge the way Simon Cowell judged. It was to right. kind of encourage stage presence, which she is a legitimate expert in. Absolutely. An expert in that and an expert in, I think, something that's more important than singing talent in the pursuit of pop stardom, which is to understand the mechanics of what a pop career is about, which is more than just being able to fucking sing. If there's anything that I can walk away from the American Idol phenomenon thinking, it's that a lot of people can sing, but not a lot of people can be pop stars. And I think that that is Paula Abdul. I think even when Paula Abdul couldn't churn the screws herself just because of her own limitations, I think she had a really deep, fundamental, and studied understanding of what pop stardom was about in her age. She had a sense of it. I mean, even as I'm dragging head over heels, what she was going for there was the right idea. She was supposed to be trying to find a way to morph with the times while keeping her same sound, while deepening and expanding what she was doing, while incorporating deeper elements of her personal biography. I mean, this is what you do as a pop star. That is how you keep evolving. She didn't pull it off. She had her limitations, but she got it. She knew what being a pop star was about and she was willing to work the screws and for a little minute there she really cracked the code and it's kind of a fascinating thing to watch somebody that maybe got lucky in a lot of ways but definitely once she got the luck knew how to work it that's more important than having a great singing voice there's a lot of people that can sing but i guess that leads me to my last question before we get to the pantheon which is what is paula abdul's legacy when we look back on paula abdul where do we see her influence on pop and pop stardom and pop music that came after her if there's notable ways that we can lay that out for people well i mean i've already made comparisons to people like Rihanna. Yeah. Rihanna, who has had a much more storied career by a factor of 10 than Paula Abdul had, but also had to sort of find her voice and find the thing that made her what she was. Yes. And she clearly did that better than Paula Abdul did. Yes. <laughs> but Paula is an important figure at that moment when dancing and the body and choreography were vital to pop stardom. Is she as important as Michael Jackson? No, because Michael taught a whole generation how to dance in a music video. Sure. But she makes a significant contribution to how pop moved at the turn of the 90s, at that moment when Janet was coming up in 
the future, Britney Spears is coming up. Mm-hmm. I see her as a liminal figure. She is not yeah. super essential to the pop trajectory. Mm-hmm. You could lift Paula Abdul out of the pop timeline and pop could continue to exist. This is not the plot of the movie Yesterday where the Beatles don't exist <laughs> and suddenly everything changes. Yeah. I don't think it's that. Right. But I do think that she is a key liminal figure at this moment where pop is in transition and becoming what it's Mm. going to become in the new millennium. So give her her props for that. And I think in some ways she represents the platonic ideal of that generation of pop stars more so than the ones that have more personality and more going on do. If you were going to just pick out what was the platonic ideal of a pop star in 1988, 1990, you could pick out one of these music videos and pick out one of these songs and be like, this is what it sounded like. This is what it looked like. This is how it moved. And there's a lot to be said for that. I walked away from this deep dive feeling a lot of affection for what a hard fucking worker she was and what a lovable character she continued to be both as represented through her music career and that I think got codified even further through the American Idol phenomenon. And I'm glad that people will remember her in that way as kind of like a really sweet, earnest, hardworking and professional and at times quite dazzling performer and pop star. Exactly. So let's talk about the pop pantheon. I have a feeling we're not going to disagree on this, so this is going to be a boring segment of the show. But where do you see Paula fitting into the pop pantheon? I mean, she's no better than third tier, I think. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some records. She scored the most number one hits from a debut album. So that's impressive. Yes. It depends on how you count things. Like, for example... Was George Michael's Faith the debut album or really kind of like the continuation of his career with Wham? I think that's different because he's coming off of something. Exactly. So from a standing start, she scores four number one hits from a debut album. That is remarkable. Yeah. There was a moment where she was, if not the very biggest pop star going, the biggest chart star going for a little while. Sure. For a very short period. But for a very short period. That's the thing. She has this blaze of glory for two years. Yeah. I think that makes her third tier at best. Where do you come out? I was going to go for four. I wouldn't fight you on that. But I can see it as cuspy. It's difficult because when I had Tom on the show, we did an episode on Belinda Carlisle, Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, and Taylor Dane. And I thought about putting Paula in that episode, but then I was like, no, that's not fair. She deserves her own episode. But it was cuspy in a way to me. You know, you think about Taylor Dane. She also had a run of very successful hits. She had one big album that had four or five top 10 singles on it. And then a second album that had maybe another two or three, not dissimilar from Paula's trajectory. So... I'm torn because I agree that the moment was so big. But one thing that she also reminds me of is another artist that we eventually put in tier four, which is Kesha. Somebody that had a huge first album with a lot of big hits and then a second sort of big album with a couple hits on it. And then for reasons that were largely out of her control, kind of fell out of the discussion at a crucial moment in her career. So I see it as cuspy. Mm-hmm. Here's my question. We talked about how the Imperial phase generated hits that shouldn't have been hits. One of the beauties of the Paula Abdul thing is we have a lot of hindsight here. To a kid that didn't grow up with Paula Abdul, what are they remembering as Paula Abdul canonical hits? It's mostly straight up. It's to a lesser extent cold-hearted. Yeah. And maybe Rush Rush, and that's kind of it. If I'm thinking about the requirements for tier 
four. It's one to two big albums and three to five big hit singles that are recognizable to many people who are not in the artist core fan base. I would say that. I would say their name is at least recognizable to people who are of prime age during their moment. Yes. It's obvious that they have one or two signature songs and it's a very clear what they are. Yes. Yes. Easily mistaken for other artists. I mean, look, if you didn't grow up with Paula Abdul, couldn't you see a young kid listening to a Paula Abdul song and mistaking that for a Janet song or mistaking that for a Madonna song? Yes, I totally can't. And they're not usually taken particularly seriously by mainstream audiences aside from being points of nostalgia. I'd say, yeah. You're kind of describing Paula, I have to say. Exactly. I was trying to present the kind case for a low three. I get it because that one album was so big. I think it's cuspy, but I come down on top of four is my perception of it. I think top of four sounds right to me too. All right, so we'll put her in top of four. Much love to our girl, Paula Abdul. Chris, is there an underrated Paula Abdul song that you'd like to share that we could send the podcast out on? I mean, I'm going to keep pimping Blowing Kisses in the Wind because it's such a weird record. It was a top 10 hit that never gets played anymore. Nobody ever thinks about it. It probably doesn't have any Spotify play to speak of, but I think it's a strange and interesting record. Okay, so let's send the show out on Blowing Kisses in the Wind. Chris Malamphy, as always, thank you so, so much for being on the show. And everybody, pre-order Chris's book, Old Town Road, and let's get it to number one. How about that, Chris? That would be lovely. Thank you so much, Louis. It's, as (laughs) always, a total pleasure talking to you. As always. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Paula Abdul. She is in tier four. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so, so much to the incredible Chris Malamphy for being such an amazing guest. Of course, to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this podcast happen every week. To PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. And to Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ LOUIEXIV on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous tomorrow night in Los Angeles. Tickets are available in the show notes of this episode. And until we meet again, y'all have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.